Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Um, I will introduce our guests, the co-authors of the new book, Justice on Trial, the Kavanaugh Confirmation, and the Future of the Supreme Court, which, by the way, reached number one on the Amazon bestseller list before it was released. Um, I think as you saw coming in, uh, it's, it's for sale in the Allison foyer and will be uh, afterwards as well. Molly Hemingway is a senior editor of the influential online magazine The Federalist, a senior journalism fellow at Hillsdale College, a contributor to Fox News, and a past Lincoln fellow at the Hoover Institute. Her political commentary has been widely published uh, from the Wall Street Journal to the Washington Post, from National Review to the LA Times. She's also the recipient of the Heritage Foundation's 2019 Salvatore Prize for American Citizenship, which we give each year to an individual or an organization that, who embodies and advances the virtues of the American founding. And Carrie Severino is the Chief Counsel and Policy Director of the Judicial Crisis Network, after graduating cum laude from Harvard Law School, she clerked for Judge David Sentel on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, and then for Justice Clarence Thomas on the U.S. Supreme Court. Carrie has been a, a dean's visiting scholar at Georgetown University Law Center and appears regularly on networks including MSNBC, Fox, and CNN. Molly, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. And thank you, everyone, for coming. We are so happy to be here. Tom, you were one of the first people we interviewed when we set about to write Justice on Trial, and your uh, guidance was very helpful, and we appreciate it. And uh, and you were not the only person at Heritage that we interviewed and, and gleaned uh, important information from for the book. In Justice on Trial, we do two things and we weave them together. We tell the story of the Kavanaugh confirmation and we describe uh, just, it's. we knew it was an interesting story. When we set out to write it, we thought we might never have such an interesting story uh, that we get to tell. And so we, we go through that. We also uh, place the Kavanaugh confirmation in the context of recent Supreme Court nomination battles why nominations have gotten to be so politically contentious, what can be done to deal with that in the future. And Carrie will address that latter part, but I wanted to just share a few of the stories that we learned by reporting this book, because I think they, uh, they show why it was such an interesting story, and they show how many people were involved 
in resisting the efforts to destroy the confirmation or prevent the confirmation uh, through tactics that, regardless of your political position, were something that that were beneath uh, beneath us as um, as a civilized republic. So I have uh, just briefly want to go through four women who were really important, whose stories we are able to tell in Justice on Trial, beginning with Ashley Kavanaugh. Ashley Kavanaugh is Brett Kavanaugh's wife. She grew up in Texas. Uh, we, we're, we learned about her career arc, where she began as a um, personal secretary to then-Governor George W. Bush, ends up making it to the White House, where she is secretary to, to President Bush, which means she has the desk right outside the Oval Office, uh, living through things like the 9-11 attacks and what that was like to go through um, as as someone so close to the president, how she learns how to um, rely on scripture for support, uh, how she develops a very even keel. She ends up praying that her husband does not get the nomination to be a Supreme Court justice. She's a very big supporter of her president and has been throughout their marriage, uh, but she'd been through two brutal confirmation processes uh, during the Bush administration. He was first nominated as a federal judge during the Bush administration. She saw how difficult it was. He was, uh, before being nominated, he was a uh, he was already a federal judge with lifetime tenure. They had a very good life, uh, happy family. Just this was not something they needed. Learning that she prays about it, but then uh, prays that he won't get the nomination. But then once he does is fully supportive. Thinking through what it would be like to have your husband being accused of the most horrific crimes, how to explain that to your young daughters. Um, She is the town manager in Chevy Chase, so dealing with her public role there as as she's going through a global, you know, certainly national, but even a global story and whirlwind. Uh, It was very interesting for us to learn more details about this, um, including, by the way, her secret escape from her house on the eve of his nomination uh, before she knew that he would even be nominated, but having to get herself and her kids out of the house, stashing their uh, stashing their clothing in a, in a tree house of a neighbor. I mean, we... There were more cloak and dagger details in this uh, in this book than we realized we would have, and certainly um, some surprises there. The second woman I want to highlight is Senator Susan Collins, the Republican senator from Maine. Before Kavanaugh is even nominated, she starts receiving threatening packages in at her offices in Maine. Uh, abortion activists were sending her hangers as a veiled threat, so. You know, long before Kavanaugh is even the one, is even the person who's chosen, she's targeted for her vote by people who would like her to vote against whoever the nominee is. She is a moderate Republican. She takes the confirmation process extremely seriously, and she begins doing due diligence on Brett Kavanaugh's record. She hires additional staff, a lot of additional staff, attorneys, to help her go through his decisions. She becomes so familiar with his record that she understands footnotes to, you know, to articles he's written uh, that she brings out in conversations when she's, when she's debating whether he would be a 
justice that should be, whether he should be a justice or not. Um, she deals with some pretty difficult things with her staff. Once Kavanaugh is nominated and the efforts to stop him really heat up, particularly with the uh, increasingly outlandish allegations of assault, her staff are fielding phone calls. Uh, one of her young female staffers who works on like social security claims is threatened with rape and violence and ends up quitting because she can't handle the pressure. She thinks, how odd that these people in the name of women's rights are forcing women out of public service. She stays strong. She happens to be someone for whom bullying doesn't work. So the more she's bullied, the more committed she is to reviewing Brett Kavanaugh's record and making a decision very seriously. She takes her role uh, she takes her advise and consent role extremely seriously. And it's not just that she weighs the evidence and ends up voting to confirm Justice Kavanaugh. It's also that she gives this incredible speech that was a very important moment for people to take a step back and evaluate the evidence of the allegations that had been made against Brett Kavanaugh. And she does it in a very charitable way, in a very uh, kind way for both the accuser and the accused. And she just becomes this very important person. I would also like to highlight Rachel Mitchell, who I think is an unsung hero of the heroine of the process. Rachel Mitchell is the Arizona prosecutor who's hired by Republicans to ask questions of Christine Blasey Ford when there is a reopened hearing. Uh, when people get their first glimpse of Rachel Mitchell and her very gentle questioning of, of Blasey Ford, they think, this is not what we wanted. We wanted someone who would just rip this witness to shreds. Well, Rachel Mitchell, her, her career is interviewing people uh, who are uh, victims of sex crimes or who claim to be victims of sex crimes to determine whether their case can be prosecuted. She teaches people throughout the country how to do a forensic interview, how to um, how to be careful with children and women and other vulnerable victims of sex crimes. You saw that on display when she interviews for the job with the Republicans. She lets them know, if you're looking for a bulldog, I'm not it. But as she questions Christine Blasey Ford, she ends up pulling out all sorts of interesting information. Prior to that hearing, we were told that Christine Blasey Ford had to delay the testimony indefinitely because of her terror about flying. Uh, this is just one example of how she handled her questioning. Okay, that's a fair that's a fair issue. So, you know, as we learn more about her fear of flying, Rachel Mitchell elicits that she flies regularly for work and for pleasure. She lists surf travel as one of her interests, which requires island hopping. And all of a sudden, this thing that was the major reason why these hearings had to be delayed, a strategy that just happened to coincide with the Democratic, or something that happened to coincide with Democratic strategy, is based on something that's not borne out by the facts. Um, she does this carefully under unbelievably difficult circumstances. She finds out the day before the hearing that it's going to have to be in five-minute increments, which is not how forensic interviews are supposed to take place. They're supposed to take place privately, comfortably, over a long duration where you have the time to have a witness or have a, have a victim or alleged victim tell the story in different ways. This was not the system in which she was operating, but she handled it so carefully 
and ends up telling Republican senators that not only was there not enough evidence for conviction, there wasn't even enough evidence for a search warrant. And because she had this credibility, because she cares about these things, when the Republican senators hear this, it gives them much more confidence to vote to confirm Brett Kavanaugh. Finally, I would like to mention Leland Kaiser. And Leland Kaiser is a lifelong liberal. She did not want Justice Kavanaugh, she did not want Brett Kavanaugh confirmed to the Supreme Court. And she is a lifelong friend of Christine Blasey Ford. When Blasey Ford uh, comes out with her allegation, she names Leland Kaiser as a witness to the uh, to the party at which the alleged assault took place. She also named three boys who were witnesses. All four people come out and say that they have no recollection of this alleged event. In the case of Leland, she's the only female to say this. She's the only close friend of Christine Blasey Ford's to say this. Um, she loves her friend, wants to support her friend, but is unable to help her corroborate this story. She tells her, she tells her, she says that publicly. And Brett Kavanaugh makes a point of mentioning that repeatedly during his testimony. This actually frustrates her because she wants to support her friend and she doesn't like that her name is being used as, uh, as claiming, he kept saying, she's refuting Christine Blasey Ford's story. She's thinking, I'm not refuting, I'm, I'm just saying I don't remember. After that, though, she starts getting communications from mutual friends of Blasey Ford's and her that seemed to people who were privy to these, that they were, um, that they were pressuring her to change her testimony. And she does issue another statement saying, even though I don't remember this, I, I do believe my friend Christine Blasey Ford. But as the pressure continues and as there's more time to review that summer, she realizes she has great memories of that summer. She remembers that summer well. It was a formative summer for her. She doesn't appreciate the pressure to change her, her testimony. And when the FBI reopens its investigation, she lets them know these things. That's someone who would politically not want Justice Kavanaugh, or would not want Brett Kavanaugh on the court, would have the courage to say these things and be truthful under pressure, I think is really commendable. We tell many stories of courage and uh, what people went through in Justice on Trial, but these are just four people who I think are worthy of highlighting and commending for their work. So I want to talk a little bit about you know, the other side of our story, which is really to give a sweep of the history of what has happened to put the Kavanaugh confirmation in context, both of the context of the past, how we got here, and really the context of what that means for the future. Because obviously this, will, this was not the first Supreme Court nomination, and it will certainly not be the last. Um, one of the stories that we thought was so fascinating to tell was how confirmation processes have evolved to be where they are. And what we learned is that over the course of really the last you know half century or, or, or more, there has been a real development in, uh, of people understanding the significance of the Supreme Court, um, and particularly in terms of Republican politicians uh, recognizing that significance. Uh, and we think that we have 
you can kind of mark what we've learned from almost each of these nominations to help bring us to where we are today. So, for example, uh, President Eisenhower, a, uh, a Republican president who, in fact, didn't view not only didn't really view the courts as a, a key issue that he was, uh, you know, I, I need to make sure I get um, judges with a conservative judicial philosophy. He nominated Ur- Chief Justice Earl Warren, who was one of the most historically um, notoriously liberal justices. He viewed it almost as a political um, chit to be handed out. Warren stepped down in the Republican primary and thought, oh, this is a nice thing to do for him. I'll, I'll put him on the Supreme Court. No consideration of, well, what kind of justice would he be? I don't know, but he was really nice to me once. Um, it would be it would be a, a great idea to get some more votes uh, in some of these northeastern states. So he said, let's find a Catholic Democrat to nominate to the court. I mean, that is, that's the level of the analysis that was being given. And later in his life, he recognized, I think, um, or, or certainly is, is said to have said that two of his greatest mistakes were sitting on the Supreme court. Um, but so maybe maybe our first step was recognizing that actually the the um, judicial philosophy of a justice really does matter. This isn't just some, you know, yes, it's been called the least dangerous branch, um, famously in the in the Federalist, because the court doesn't have its own doesn't have its own army. It's not technically able to make it laws. Um, however, we've learned that the court actually when it when it arrogates too much power to itself can become the most dangerous branch. And we started to see that. So as uh, as time progressed then, you had, okay, let's start vetting for judicial philosophy. That became a real important issue when Reagan became president, obviously with uh, Attorney General Meese leading the way and realizing we need to make sure these are people who have a very a solid understanding of what the Constitution is. Um, and I thought it was fascinating to learn that Ronald Reagan recognized this dangerous power of the of the judicial branch because he'd experienced it himself as a governor in California. Many of the um, actions that he was trying to take as governor um, and reforms to the system were being just reflexively blocked by courts, again, not, not for legal reasons, but because politically they were opposed to what he was doing. So he realized, oh, wow, there's a lot of mischief that can happen here. Let's make sure we have judges who are hewing very closely to the law. And for a while, that was going going great. We had people like Justice Scalia, who was, this is still in a, in a earlier era of, of uh, judicial nominations where a unanimous confirmation, even for someone who we would view as potentially polarizing, like Antonin Scalia, was just a matter of course. And um, anyone who, if you want a fun afternoon, watch his confirmation hearings as he sits there smoking a pipe in the room, joking with everyone. It's just, it's a lot of fun. It's a, it's a far cry from what we see today. Things changed when the Senate changed hands. And uh, so you have the same President Reagan uh, in, in, in slightly different political circumstances and with his own administration weakened in other ways because of other surrounding po- politics, uh, appoints someone or nominates Robert Bork then to be a Supreme Court nominee. And at that point, um, something different hits. And instead of the relatively smooth confirmation that someone like Scalia had, you have a nomination that is ground to an absolute halt. You had people, uh, Senator Kennedy coming out, giving his famous speech from the floor, Robert Bork's America, where he gives a litany of all of the horrible apocalyptic things that will result if if, uh, Robert Bork is is on the court. You have uh, a Gregory Peck uh, narrating a national TV ad against him. This was considered shocking to have that um, that type of uh, advocacy going on in hundreds of groups. Um, and there's a lot of debate as to how is it that this um, this took the Reagan's team so much by surprise. I think it was, it was a very much a different era. People weren't expecting that you'd have to fight back 
in a nomination. And in many ways, it was expected that it was sort of unseemly even to fight back. We learned that his son, Robert Bork Jr., actually, who was a journalist at the time, went out and did speak to some TV stations saying, trying to defend his father's record because his record was being savaged and, and misconstrued so in the press. And he was called by his father and said, don't do this. Stand down. This is not appropriate for our family even, not let alone the nominee himself, but the family even to be making a stand. There were also some of many of his clerks who, who would have been interested. And we learned Charlton Heston was happy to have um, narrated his own counter ad. And they said, nope, we're not going to, we're, we're simply not going to do this. Perhaps too little too late. Uh, the Reagan team did step up and recognize that maybe they needed to put forward a, a little bit more of a public relations um, explanation of what was going on rather than simply stepping back and letting it happen. But unfortunately, it, it was too late for uh, Bork's, to save Bork's nomination. Um, so what what was learned from that uh, failure to confirm a nominee, I think, was a recognition of the significance of this public relations arm that was being brought to bear on the, on the confirmation process and the significance of having a robust group of people ready and willing to defend a nominee, especially when the nominee, him or herself, would feel um, like their hands were tied. Um, there was a, there was a response to that also that that what they what some people thought they learned is we can't nominate people who have opinions or who have clear views that that are out there in the public because they will be attacked. So that was one lesson that many people took from it. And this is how we ended up with a, a nominee like David Souter from the first President Bush. Um, it was He was someone who had been in the courts a vanishingly short period of time and operating really not on a judicial record, but simply on, on being vouched for by other people in the process. Oh no, this guy's really conservative. He'll be great. Um, I think that, that uh, showed itself to be a real problem because he ended up being one of the reliable members of the liberal bloc on the court. When you go in with a nominee that is a complete blank slate, um, it's almost worse than you don't know what you'll get because history also shows us that if you map the direction that justices shift on the court, it is almost, there's only one justice that I can even think of in history that has perhaps shifted to the right, and that would be that would be um, Wizard White, White, who Molly loves as a fellow Coloradan. Um, but it's almost always you see the justices shift to the left. It's as, if, it's as if there's a seismic reality under the Supreme Court where the entire bench tilts that direction, but it, it does seem that that's how things go. So if you go in with someone with a blank slate, you will, you will almost certainly have someone who then ultimately does not um, have a conservative approach to the courts. He, when he nominated Clarence Thomas um, immediately thereafter, of course, it was a very different issue. And this also um, showed kind of one of the strains we saw through this process, which is the biggest battles come when the, the most is on the line for the courts. So if you're replacing um, a, a conservative with a conservative, you might get people who are upset about the, the issue, but you're not going to get the apocalyptic type um, confirmation process. Justice Thomas was replacing Thurgood Marshall, who was one of the most outspoken liberal members of the bench. And he, at the time, um, he actually didn't have a very long judicial record, but he was not a dark horse candidate. He was someone who absolutely had a record because he had spent years in the Reagan administration and had been taking lots of... Um, uh, flack that whole time for his conservative positions that he was taking this the, the entire time. So everyone who had followed his career up to that point knew absolutely this is someone who's principled, this is someone who has a very strong commitment to, to doing things legally and correctly. 
they attempted to attack him and uh, first attack his record. And when that failed, we saw something that to people that just watched the Kavanaugh process looks very familiar. There was a leaked allegation that was leaked by someone as Democrat on the Senate Judiciary Committee. And we had ended up with a second round of hearing. There was not corroboration of the allegation. In fact, there was what you could call almost anti-corroboration, people who were pointing out that there were inconsistencies or things that were shown to be untrue about her statements. Nonetheless, it led to a national um, media circus. And uh, while he was ultimately confirmed, and impressively for nowadays, confirmed by a Democratic Senate, so now that's sort of hard to even imagine you would let a nominee through when, when, for, under any circumstances, but there were still were some of the vestiges of a little bit more bipartisanship there. Um, but it certainly was not a um, not a proud moment. It, the, the way that he was treated, and of course his high tech lynching speech, is one that that um, anyone who who witnessed that um, felt the power of of his concern with what this was doing to the process. Um, watching that process, I think people really learned that that the lengths to which the left was willing to go to block a nominee. And I think a lot of people were, were so concerned that it, this had gotten incredibly ugly. They were hoping it would, you know, let's, let's just retreat back into the way things used to be. We had Clinton's nominees were very confirmed with near unanimous uh, records. There was a lot more heating up of judicial battles um, in the 2000s under President Bush because the filibuster was inaugurated as a method of blocking judges. Um, and that was something that was even attempted under um, Justice Alito. But at the time, there was still this this uh, norm in the Senate saying, well, we're not going to just filibuster Supreme Court nominees for, for political ends. That came to an end with Justice Gorsuch. And then they, 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 the Democrats were willing to actually go so far as to filibuster someone who everyone agreed was a overwhelmingly impressive nominee and his credentials um, came off very well in his hearings. And that was a moment where um, the, the political mood was such that Chuck Schumer, I think, although he realized at the time this was not really a good strategic move, felt forced by the extreme wing of his party to push um, for a filibuster of, of Justice Gorsuch, and Justice Gorsuch became the first and now last partisan filibuster of a Supreme Court nominee in history. It was so egregious that it, it encouraged even the Republicans who didn't want to change the rules of the Senate and who hoped to be able to maintain uh, things kind of as they were, status quo, Prior to this getting so hostile, they said this is ridiculous. If they'll filibuster Neil Gorsuch, they'll filibuster anyone, and and then it happened. And of course, that was the level we see it. We see a general trend upward in terms of hostility um, in Supreme Court nominations, and then we see this kind of internal, almost sign curve of when you're replacing someone of an op that's going to have a shift in the court, it gets crazy, and when you're not, it gets it's a little less crazy. So so. Neil Gorsuch was the less crazy version for the Trump nominee. He was replacing Justice Scalia. We knew they were going to be have a similar approach. His time on the court has borne that out, and he did. Justice Kavanaugh, of course, was replacing Justice Kennedy. And we've known for a long time, as a long-time swing vote, that Kennedy was the linchpin of the court and would that his replacement would lead to a political out-and-out uh, World War III, effectively, and, and that's that is ultimately what we saw. So that is the that is the trend of how we got here historically in terms of judicial nominations. But why is it that we're seeing this trend, this upward trend in hostility on the court? And what Molly and I came to the conclusion of, and talking with so many court watchers and people who have been involved in the courts and in the Senate of the process, is that it is 
really a symptom of the dysfunction and the, the lack of constitutional moorings that we have in our government today. Our constitutional system, for anyone who watched Schoolhouse Rock, right, we've got three branches of government. You have the, constitu- the, the Congress that makes the laws, and then they send the bill up to the president, and the bill gets signed into law, and that is how law is made in this country. Unfortunately, we have a level of gridlock in the country that's not easy to make laws that way. And in fact, it requires a lot of back and forth, and it requires a lot of sausage making. Uh, it can be very difficult to accomplish things in the law. And that creates a great temptation, both on the port, part of courts and on the part of Congress. Congress is very tempted not to have to make these hard decisions. They don't want to be the ones who are going to be held politically accountable for either a compromise they have struck or a position they have taken that they know is going to be unpopular with maybe half their electorate, and uh, say so they'd rather avoid it. One, one method that Congress has done has chosen to, do, to uh, deal with that is to hand off as many things as possible to the administrative state, and another method is to allow the courts to then do its bit dirty work for it. So they write vague laws, they let then administrative agencies give the actual content to the laws, so the buck never stops where our elected representatives are supposed to bear that uh, that responsibility for what the laws are. Unfortunately, the courts are all too happy to play into this handing off of responsibility. Um, It gives them more authority to really add content to the law, whether it's a vague law that they are adding content to themselves, or whether it's simply allowing um, the administrative agencies to write the law themselves. President Obama famously said, if Congress isn't going to do what I'm going to want, I'll use my pen and my phone. And he's referring to, I can just call up the head of these agencies and they can get it done. And, And unfortunately, that is a reality of the way our system works many times. What that means is that the courts, whether it's through their deference to agencies accomplishing things or whether it's through their taking laws into their own hands that they either think are outdated or sloppily written, I mean, what law is not probably sloppily written at the end of the day, um, and or that they think could just have been better done, and they then would like to, are able to rewrite those laws. And they do, they go so far as to do this with many constitutional provisions as well. There, it's, it's frustrating maybe to have a document that while it has a method for amendment, it, that's a very hard and difficult process. And so you can get impatient and say, you know what? Darn it. This, this death penalty, this can't be, this can't be right. You know, I know they've had this since the institution of the Republic, but we are past that as a society. We need to bring the constitution into the 21st century and say no more with this. Um, that may be something the country decides to do. That is not something the Constitution itself has said. And that there's many areas of the law this has happened in, and certainly we've seen major flashpoints on it in, uh, in, in lots of issues. When the court steps out of its own role in simply interpreting the law, it, it is then becoming a political branch itself. Justice Scalia said that if you, are, if you have judges acting like politicians, you're going to get political battles in the confirmation process. And unfortunately, that's exactly what we have seen. As the government has grown larger and larger, and so the federal government has more of an impact on every American's life, and as the courts themselves have an outsized role in what the federal law and the constitutional law is, not just confining itself to the text that, it, that is written, but kind of taking on its own life, um, then more and more issues in American life are decided by nine unelected men and women on the Supreme Court. And that final fifth vote on the court becomes the deciding factor for a one-size-fits-all solution for the entire country. So so it's, it's a problem of our f- overgrowth of our federal government and the court system. And that, unfortunately, has raised the stakes where it's not 
not surprising that we see some of these things. You're even now seeing that after the loss of uh, from the, of the left's attempt to block Justice Kavanaugh, that they're now saying, well, let's pack the court. Let's put more people on the Supreme Court. Then we can just nominate a bunch of justices at once and we'll have a winning vote. I think everyone on both sides of the aisle knows that would be disastrous for the court as an institution. It would trigger a necessary spiraling of, you know, you can't expect Republicans to say, okay, 15 justices now, we're just all going home. You would see this continuing to spiral. It would be horrible for the institution. I think one of their goals, even in some of this, is not even so much suggesting that as a real possibility, but almost using that as taking the institution of the court as a as a hostage, knowing that there are many people on the court, including Chief Justice Roberts, who are who are concerned for the institutional status of the court and concerned not only for its institutional integrity, but also of its reputation. And I think that's the other piece that we have to be very concerned about as a society. Um, there is a lot of talk about the legitimacy of the court and keeping politics out of the court, but often that happens in, to be discussed in the public sphere as if it's a popularity contest, and we just need to make sure that the courts are being written about favorably in the media. That is a, that's not actually what, what confers legitimacy on the court. And many times what we'll see is efforts to portray uh, conservative decisions in the courts. If, if it's a conservative justice or a Republican-appointed justice, I should say, um, who comes to a decision that is determined to be conservative for whatever outcome, I think, I think it should be whether it's legally right, not whether it achieves a conservative um, political result. But nonetheless, if they say if, if, it, if a Republican-appointed justice comes to a conservative result, well, that's politics at work. And I think we need to focus on, is it a legal result? I think you think justices from both sides, if they're doing law correctly, will probably come to results on both sides. But if you are changing your vote, not because of the law, but because you're worried about either voting one way because you like the policy or even voting against that because you don't want people to do name calling and call you political either one of those is actually a political move if i'm if i'm if i'm going with what the bullies are telling me because i i i'm scared of them or if i'm going against it simply because they say that either way it's a political move we need judges who are going to be faithful to the law and the constitution full stop so that is our um, proposal, I suppose, for what would confer true legitimacy on the court, a court that is confined to its legal role. And I think um, if we could get justices of all political stripes to agree on a, a more neutral way of interpreting law and a more um, constitutional limits on its own role, we actually would take the courts out of these controversial issues. We would have fewer of these um, major political battles, and it would be better for our country. If Ashley Kavanaugh, as as, uh, Molly started with, was literally praying before this not to have her husband have to go through this nomination. Imagine what the next confirmation is going to look like. You know, this is having now seen how much worse it could get, knowing that Next time, it might not be a swing vote being replaced by President Trump, but a solid liberal vote on the court. Um, we can't afford as a nation to go down that route where men and women will have to consider whether they're willing to put their entire reputation, their families, and their lives on the line to stand up for those political, uh, for those, those, those public service types of jobs. We know it has happened in the past, and we know it just happened. So the question is now whether we'll let it happen again. Thank you. Molly, you mentioned uh, Senator Collins. When, when I was reading through the book, I was looking for uh, uh, different factors, different things that seem to contribute to the ultimate success of the confirmation. And when you mentioned Susan Collins, you have the, an anecdote in the book about when uh, Brett Kavanaugh met with 
Susan Collins. Nominees go to these courtesy visits with senators. And most of them, I worked for Senator Orrin Hatch, most of them tend to be photo ops, you know, fairly short, hello, meet and greet. Uh, but that wasn't the case with her. And I, I, I t- tell us a little bit about that and how that contributed, you know, down the road to her being willing uh, to be open to supporting him. Yes, and I'm glad that people are learning more about what Susan Collins did during this confirmation process, which was not unique to Brett Kavanaugh. It's how she handles every confirmation process. When you are nominated by the president, you tend to meet with as many senators as possible beginning the next day. So Brett Kavanaugh, the very next morning, is at Charles Grassley's office. He's the head of the Senate Judiciary Committee, and he's meeting with them. He'd been up all night, so he was really excited to get going and ends up just going very long. He's, he's answering every possible question that Grassley has with really long answers. As they leave that meeting, Don McGahn, who is the White House counsel who's accompanying him on these meetings, uh, says, you can tone it down a bit. Um, but we learned a lot by talking with so many senators and other people who are in the meetings about what these what these meetings were like. They're very different. Some people really do have a bee in their bonnet about one particular issue. You know, it could be campaign finance reform, and and uh, it could be abortion. It can be just general uh, thoughts on the court. And they, by having these meetings, the nominee understands what type of thing he will be asked about in the eventual uh, open hearing, and it helps him strategize and just uh, develop rapport with these people. The Democrats were actually boycotting meeting with Kavanaugh because they uh, they were that was part of their overall strategy of obstruction and delay, and they were waiting on paperwork. Brett Kavanaugh uh, had more paperwork that the Senate could possibly review than other nominees by a very large factor. He had literally millions of papers that he had uh, somehow been involved with during his time in the White House and whatnot. So he's not even meeting with Democrats. And when he does, it doesn't really matter because they've already all announced that they're voting against him. Everyone knew that Susan Collins was one of the most important meetings. And we've got to learn about it from both sides. Both Justice Kavanaugh and his team and Senator Collins and her team are preparing for this like it's the final exam of their lives. They they know it's going to be important and they really want to be fully knowledgeable. Uh, when she meets with him, she, as I had mentioned earlier, she had gone through his entire record. She'd gone through speeches. She had questions. She had concerns. Um, she had been in debates with, with staff and she'd brought on additional staff to help her go through this amazing amount of paperwork. She's not on the Judiciary Committee. So this is something, you know, if you are on the Judiciary Committee, it's kind of normal to do these things. Had she been like a typical senator who didn't really prepare, who just had a pet issue that they wanted to talk about, um, this confirmation process might have gone very differently. It was her thoroughness and knowledge of his record that helped carry this nomination through and also made her less susceptible to the um, to the outrage mob that develops in September of last year. And, and do you think that that might have planted the seed uh, that when the critics, outside groups, Democratic senators, were making a lot of claims throughout the process about his record and so on, she having already gone through it early, um, you know, had the basis on which maybe to for an instinct to to come up saying this is misrepresenting his record, this isn't a, an actual, um, uh, you know, accurate description of of the kind of judge that he's been. 
that thoroughness, whatever her politics, that thoroughness may have planted that seed and she was better able to see the tactics for what they were. Yes, definitely the thoroughness. Also a, a bit of providence, which I'll get to in, in a moment. Remember, she she is also being targeted by this mob. So she it, it makes her naturally less... Um, less likely to just fall for the claims that are being made because the same mob that's going after Kavanaugh has been targeting her since June of last year, before he's even named. And so she uh, she she is wary for that reason. Also, she found out that sometimes she was more knowledgeable than supposed Supreme Court experts. They would say, oh, did you read this, this thing? And she'd say, aha, but did you read that footnote where he makes a specific point to say that that's, you know, that this is not to be read the way that you're reading it? Um, that is a level of knowledge that you do not normally see with senators. But the bit of providence was that uh, they have this meeting. It goes super long. The whole goal of the White House team is to get Brett Kavanaugh in and out of meetings as quickly as possible without anything bad happening. Well, they get along so well that they both, uh, they're both they both uh, being very chummy. She says, why don't you come back? He says, I would love to. The White House team is like, no, no, please. We're, we got out of this just fine. But the, the, the time that they had made for an arrangement to meet again, they actually do it over the phone, was the Friday before the Sunday where the Washington Post reports the story, but it was after the rumors had already gotten out. She privately asks him, she asks her staff to leave and privately asks him um, about the allegations. He gives a full-throated denial, and they'd had such rapport and such honesty with each other that it makes a big difference in, in the weeks to come. Carrie, the, w- w- looking at the hearing, the, the, the real hearing, um, Many Democrats, including many members of the committee, um, as you describe in the book, announced their opposition to whoever the president was going to nominate, and then more specifically, Brett Kavanaugh. They did that very early. Mm-hmm. Did that uh, did that undermine their efforts during the process and during the hearing to say, well, we need more information, we need more documents, we, we have to delay, since they'd already said we're going to vote no? Yeah, I think that was a real challenge. I think every single member, Democratic member of the Judiciary Committee, except for uh, Chris Coons hadn't exactly said that he wasn't going to vote for him, but it was fairly clear which direction he was going, um, but had already announced that he, they weren't going to be voting for Kavanaugh. And so one, one asks, you know, what, what more information do they really need? Obviously, I think there were, there were a lot of points at which that extreme approach actually injured themselves. So the document, uh, uh, fight that Molly alluded to earlier was one of them, where he he just legitimately had so many more documents because of the type of jobs he had had in the White House before. He was staff secretary. Virtually every piece of paper that went through the White House went across his desk. So he had seen everything that went through that Bush White House for years, on top of which the, the timing of the uh, nomination, of, of his time working there, where it was just at the beginning of emails being used, Blackberries had just kind of become a thing. So people were making so many more records than they do now, kind of without a thought of like, oh, I'm just, you know, they're basically planning all of their events even on their Blackberries. It's just so much fun to to use while you're creating presidential records in the meantime. So it was a lot of content that I think more than you probably would even see today. Um, and there was a real question in terms of how are we going to be able to look through this just in a timely matter. Recall that one of the big number one goals the Democrats had at the time was to delay this. They thought if they could delay it past the election, that would really help them in, in at the polls. Um, and th- their method of doing so, the, the, st- the broad strategy seemed to be, we are going to demand everything and we're going to 
cause a huge fuss and we don't get it. So they didn't even just demand all the documents he had worked on or authored or even the documents he had received. They demanded every piece of paper that went through the White House, even if he hadn't even seen it. That was so extreme that it put um, people like Susan Collins, the, the votes that were really in play, your real target audience here, um, was put off by that. And we learned it was very interesting that um, Senator Feinstein, who actually has worked on this, in this committee in the Senate, obviously, for many years, um, and had a better rapport with Chuck Grassley um, than many people do, had come to agreements on, on a smaller number of documents than this ab- absurd universe of, of every document in the Bush White House. And that volume of documents, um, while it was a reasonable number to look at, actually would have been very hard to get through in a timely manner, but they thought it was a reasonable number. Well, her after she agreed on this with Senator Grassley, her staff walked that back and said, oh, no, 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 we can't have any kind of agreement that's less than every, you know, thousand percent of all the documents. And that in some ways actually helped the Republicans because it it made it very easy for them to say, look, we are being as reasonable as humanly possible and they are not accepting yes for an answer. And that that made it able for them to move forward, even though they weren't able to get every single document in the hands. It was just, it was impossible to do every single document. They were actually able to move forward more quickly. So there's so many moments that that, um, unreasonableness uh, kind of backfired there's, on them. There's one that I think is worth sharing too, which is Bernie Sanders at some point says that something happens and therefore you absolutely have to have another delay. And Chuck Grassley writes back this hilariously sarcastic letter like, oh, is your vote up for grabs? Because you had reported already months ago that you were against him. But if by all means, we will be happy to accommodate you if you are genuinely considering this nominee in a way that you didn't previously. So that overreach did backfire for yeah. the Democrats. Well, let's um, uh, open it up to questions from the audience. I think we have, do we have microphones? Uh, when you get a microphone, then you can ask your question. And as I said, a brief question with a question mark, and then we'll let our, uh, uh, why don't we start it down here. Hi, Michelle Easton, Claire Booth Luce Center for Conservative Women. Thank you for this wonderful story you've told. Would you mind sharing a little what you found about Christine Blasey Ford and her background and motivations? We did, we, you know, it's a, it's a big part of the story, so we did in speaking with more than 100 people who are uh, part of the process, which includes people at the White House and senators and Supreme Court members and people who know the Kavanaugh family very well and people who are close to Christine Blasey Ford as well. And it, uh, it was very interesting to learn in a more nuanced fashion about her and what her community thought of her. And it was different than what had been presented in the media, which is not that surprising because most of the media reporting on her had been almost like hagiographies. And so uh, one of the things, you know, we talked to people who are who are and were friends with her, um, who say that the first thing that struck them was that she had uh, she had a very active Facebook page where she expressed herself politically quite regularly. One of her friends described it as 
as her being, uh, that her Facebook page was like, crazy liberal. Um, we all have friends on Facebook who are at extremes on some, you know, on political posting, and that's how they characterized her. But shortly before the nomination, everything gets scrubbed. Um, it goes down, and there's no way to access these political posts. There's a tiny little remnant of her political activism that is on the internet, um, but it's not a major, nobody seems to think that this might be uh, an issue worth exploring political motivation. Uh, people close to her do say that abortion is a very important topic for her. And they also just uh, were very surprised by the story that she told of what happened in high school. They did remember her as being um, you know, someone who uh, was a heavy drinker. That was something that was reported to us that uh, she was um, you know, very active in a dating sense. Um, they were very surprised by the story. They had not heard anything of that nature, and it didn't seem to match with what they understood about how she would respond to such interactions. Um, and we do report that. It's not something, uh, you know, it's that none of these things necessarily bear at the veracity of an allegation, but we tell it in the context of how the White House was being deluged with this information. So was the Senate Judiciary Committee. They declined to do anything with this information because they know the media environment is such that every little joke in a yearbook of Brett Kavanaugh's friend is going to be front page New York Times story. But if you say anything about the accuser, you will be uh, treated as if you are being inappropriate. Uh, write it down here on the aisle. And if you and if you your question is specifically directed toward either Carrie or Molly, please indicate that. Hi, thanks very much for your presentation. Did you find out anything about what the other justices on the court or anyone in the immediate uh, orbit of the court think about how all of this played out? Um, it's there are so few leaks from the court. It seems pretty clear to me that Kagan really enjoys working with Kavanaugh based on their questions. Uh, uh, during oral argument this term. Thanks. Yeah, that was one of the, you know, interviewing Supreme Court justices is a real treat uh, because it isn't, they aren't I highly people. recommend it. You yes. should do it. <laughs> <laughs> they, aren't, they aren't people who are normally very easy to get, um, uh, to uh, you know, talking about things. Um, I, it was interesting to learn that, you know, obviously there are people like, like Justice Thomas who did have a similar confirmation process, but across the board, basically all the justices hated their confirmation process. For the, even ones who had, a, relatively speaking, a much easier one, it was still harder than they expected it to be. And they were, um, they kind of came to the court, maybe not as shell-shocked as you would after something like this, but really going, wow, that was that was kind of rough. And so when Kavanaugh came, started on the court, all of them individually um, did meet with him and just express their, I, I don't know if condolences is the right word, but just... Um, they support. said support and and um, empathy for for having gone through a process that that takes the wind out of you in a way that you weren't you know expecting. Um, I think they, it was also interesting that they made a an ex, a concerted effort to show that solidarity that you have noticed um, from the bench that you know Justice Kagan of his first day on the bench um, made a point of of uh, looking over him and, and smiling and calling shaking him out, shaking his hand, and, and uh, they even for his initial swearing in. So if you recall. 
there's there's sort of two swearing ins that happen on the court, and this is very typical um, that there's the swearing in the day of the uh, of your actual confirmation vote because in order to even start on your work at the court, you need to officially be sworn in. And then there's the ceremonial swearing in that happened uh, for Kavanaugh several days later at the White House. Well, Saturday afternoon after he had been confirmed. There was this swearing in at the court, and oftentimes that will be just the justice, maybe his immediate family, and the chief justice. But in his case, I think almost Everyone all the justices who, was in who were in town were there. And so there were Justice Kagan, Justice uh, Ginsburg was there, Justice Alito was there, Justice Thomas was there, obviously the chief justice is there. And it was a real show of support, and I think an intentional While, while a mob is at the doors of the court They're trying literally to, trying to break down the front doors. It was also funny. Plain tomatoes. Be, the, yeah, because trying to escape from the court. They, as they left afterwards, the justices almost had to run a gauntlet of these of these crazy protesters. Um, and, and in fact, the protesters in, inadvertently were throwing food and water at Justice Kagan and Justice Ginsburg's car. So, you know, the, the attempts to cast aspersions on one justice fall on all of them, I all suppose. Right. But, but I think there is that kind of collegiality. How about down here? Thanks. Um, I'm a congressional journalist. I'm covering um, immigration, and I've seen huge demonstrations, but I have never seen anything like um, the, 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 the fury, the rage of the, of the women. And, and it, was, it was scary, I must say. I've never seen so many out of control and the way that they took over heart building. And could you... Did you have a sense of what the Me Too movement, um, how that impelled this um, motion, and what impact did that, I mean, just crazy protesting. The whole whole context is the Me Too movement. That was obviously why it was so, um, why it generated so much media coverage. The protests themselves, we learned a lot about the coordination of groups to uh, bring out protesters, fly them out, do legal training, help them with their how to get arrested, what to do, bail money. Um, So I think it's important to remember that these were coordinated activities and that to some extent it was a selected group of people who were going to be most outraged. One of the things we look at is the is how frustrating it is that making allegations, and particularly as it descends, descends into a circus, against someone without corroborating support hurts the Me Too movement, hurts when women make allegations and need to be taken seriously. By the time Michael Avenatti is bringing forth a witness claiming serial gang rape parties where Brett Kavanaugh was the cartel leader of this gang that was roaming Montgomery County, um, it's so ludicrous that it is uh, it, it actually does real harm to that effort to hold powerful men accountable. Um, and it is it was a cost that I guess certain groups on the left were willing to pay, but it is unfortunate for women who are victims of sexual assault. And, and looking forward, um, th- there was the discussion throughout this process of the presumption of innocence, mm-hmm. which of course, is, you know, this wasn't technically a criminal you know, justice process, but the, the parallel there is obvious. Um, that took a real hit. Uh, going forward, what do you think? Um, is that irretrievably broken? Or is it possible to reclaim that principle? Well, it, that, that was very disturbing to see because the presumption of innocence isn't just about the due process that happens to be in the Constitution or happens to apply in a criminal trial. This is actually a foundational part of our rule of law and a system of justice that goes back you know, thousands of years. So this is not, this is, having a presumption of innocence basically means it's, you can't just say anything and I will believe that uh, some kind of claim you make against someone that you actually have to, it has to be at least 
more likely than not that someone committed a crime before we're willing to um, take take response. As Susan Collins lays out in her speech defending that presumption of innocence standard. Yeah, and it's and it's something that I, I think, unfortunately, is now selectively invoked because I think sometimes it was just people who are willing to, they, they actually don't, hate the presumption of innocence. They just oh, don't appreciate right. it for people to disagree with them. That's that's unfortunate. But uh, down here in the middle. Uh, afternoon. Chris McCall, Fairfax County Public Schools. Um, a question, I think, mainly for Carrie. You, you spoke of the changing dynamic of the um, confirmation hearings and part of it, the uh, change in behavior of the Congress, how supine and flaccid an organization they've become. Do you think at all part of the dynamic in, in, in raising the temperature of these hearings is the fact that um, because they're nationally televised, you can just have a bonanza of dog whistle questioning going on in a way that just turns into advertisement uh, instantly? I, yeah, I, and you, I, I like that label, by the way, dog whistle yeah. questioning. And you can see it's particularly the case when you have pe people on the committee um, who are getting ready to run for president in a short period of time. When you're like, you could see them kind of planning out their campaign footage in the questions they were asking. I, I actually, I mean, I, I, I am glad that we have some opportunity to ask questions publicly of, of a nominee. However, I really do question um, the usefulness of much of it, and much of it is trying to catch nominees out in saying something. There were a lot of perjury traps that were being laid that didn't really make a lot of sense, that many cases were just attempts um, to kind of have a, a dramatic Perry Mason moment that really wasn't uh, attempting uh, to a get Spartacus it moment? Spartacus, there's Spartacus moments. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a pretty, pretty egregious affair. I mean, I also, judges aren't supposed to be able to predict how they're going to, how they're going to uh, determine a, a particular case. So the real answers they would love to know is, how are you going to vote in my pet issue? But a judge can't, in good conscience, actually give that information, not even just because they're trying to hide it, but because you don't actually, until you have the literally thousands of pages of legal briefing on an issue, even if you go in thinking, yeah, that sounds like kind of a crazy legal argument, you might, you might actually look at the history and go, it's a crazy legal argument that actually everyone who passed that, that amendment to the Constitution also, you know, that's what the words meant at the time. Okay, maybe that's not so crazy. They don't want to prejudge a case. And so. Well, and the other, the other part of that, which is almost never mentioned, as in Kavanaugh's case, Gorsuch, they're already sitting judges. So their willingness to talk under oath about what they think about substantive issues and how they might decide an issue and all that, that impacts their impartiality in the job they already have mm -hmm. and, not, and not just in the future. Let, let's try to get a couple more uh, down here, please. You spoke about the politicization of the process, and although I am eternally grateful for Senator McConnell taking this stance, how do you view the withholding of hearings for Merrick Garland in that context? It's interesting. Historically, actually, two-thirds of the judicial, the, the Supreme Court nominees who have not been confirmed have not been confirmed because they did not have a vote by the Senate. So this is actually not something that's an unusual thing. Our, our, going back to Schoolhouse Rock here, right, our, our, our constitutional system has two points, two checks on how you get onto the court. It's the president nominates and the Senate has to confirm. And what happened in twenty in the period between 2014 and 2016 is the American people had given the presidency to Barack Obama, but there actually was an important election in 2014 when there, there was a move to have a check 
on what he was doing. And they gave the Republican control to of the Senate to the Republicans at that point. That isn't a full speed ahead, keep on going signal. That is a wait a minute, let's let's wait and see signal. And I think that that in that context, it makes perfect sense that you would say, okay. We're already into an election year. Let's let's see what the American people say yet again, because they weren't telegraphing. We we want to go full steam ahead with the type of um, policies that that Obama was advancing. I think you know that. So that, that is this is all the the political part of. The also, confirmation chat. is a political process by definition. You're voting on the nominee. The question is, what tactics do you engage in to accomplish your goals? And I think there is plenty of room for debate. Certainly, like for instance, Susan Collins thought that Merrick Garland should have had hearings and, and a vote up or down that that was what would be fair to him. There is a big difference between playing political hardball and not even holding hearings and uh, actually destroying someone's character and reputation without cause. That is a bit more aggressive um, and, and causes damage to people and their reputation. But there is room for debate on both of those. And, and McConnell did take his position before Garland was nominated, so we didn't know who the nominee would be, and at a time when everyone thought Hillary Clinton would be elected president. Uh, we don't mention that very often. Let's try to get um, one, maybe... How about down here? Um, the question I have, I'm this hearing was Thomas to the, I don't know, 14th degree. Many Americans like myself are looking at injustice. We're looking at people lying under oath. If we did that, we go to jail. I watched these people. Nothing ever seems to happen to a whole lot of people, including Miss Hillary, who would be in jail. If I did that, I'd be in jail. What happened to these people? Why aren't they in jail? They were lying under oath. I, I do think this is a big issue, and this is part of what we hope people take away from justice on trial, is looking at whether people have been appropriately held accountable, and that's across multiple spheres. You had absolute violation of Senate norms and procedures. You had Dianne Feinstein willfully circumventing the process by which allegations such as this are supposed to be handled confidentially, with no explanation still. Uh, you had also, of course, the coordinated leaking of, of that uh, claim. You had people making false statements, who some of whom were referred to, to, to the Department of Justice for criminal prosecution but to our knowledge, nothing has been done about that. You had the media throwing out all standards of, all journalistic standards on how to handle allegations and how to handle them carefully. Some reporters admitting that they actually had gone with stories that should not have run because they were trying to establish a pattern to, to smear uh, the nominee. And you also have uh, greater accountability needed on the court itself, meaning as what Carrie talked about at the beginning about how the court has legitimacy and how its own rulemaking can contribute to whether it is legitimate or not. Uh, I think people need to remember what they felt about this violation of presumption of innocence, about what they saw happening, and not forget to hold people accountable and demand that justice be uh, be upheld. Last question. Uh, sir. My question is that whether you guys have any standards to be applied in general or not. Uh, Kavanaugh himself in the uh, hearing said that he loves beer. That's, that's everybody knows. And uh, what effect is it considering that attorney, I mean the solicitor, I mean, uh, 
Surgeon General was here some months ago, and he was talking about the effect of alcohol on the uh, people. He was, uh, I don't remember, he wrote downstairs. And uh, for one hour, he was the only person. It, your question? Talking. The question is that, does that apply to, uh, because you like uh, Kavanaugh, just doesn't apply to him? Or this standard is, uh, depends on what side of the uh, aisle is it or not? I, I would say there's a, there's a lot of things that we should look at in Supreme Court nominees, their judicial philosophy and their qualifications. But, um, you know, post-21st Amendment, alcohol, regardless of its health benefits or, or their or lack thereof, is certainly something that one can legally uh, enjoy. And I think liking beer doesn't doesn't go to his qualifications to the, the court one way or the other, again, whether whether you're a liberal or conservative justice. And there is a context in which he was making these claims, which is that he had previously done interviews where he was accurately conveying that he had a pretty uh, nice childhood where people thought well of him and some of his critics were accusing him of lying because he because he liked beer so he admitted yes I like beer um, but uh, the bigger issue I think was one of temperament some people talked about whether his temperament was appropriate for the court and uh, you know ended up being becoming a point of uh, discussion and I think after a full term on the court we can see what his temperament is like and whether he has the judicial disposition that he claimed he had when he was making some of these comments. And I think, uh, at least at this point, it seems that he does. Well, please join me in thanking Molly Hemingway and Carrie Severian. And as, uh, as I mentioned, the book uh, is for sale still, and please do that. And Buy early, buy often. Yes, yes, indeed. Gifts. So on. Makes, makes Thank you all for coming.